I've come all the way from Little Elm today. They talk a little different over in that part of town, obviously. Uh, I'm originally from Australia, uh, from down under, and it's been just a, a great joy uh, for me to... Am I a bit loud? I can almost hear echoing. Um, it's been a great joy for me to, to an honour to come and stand in this pulpit. You know, uh, Emilio's preaching, there was a period, my wife is Danish, and... Um, living in Denmark for a while, and it was more apostate than we even realized when we went there. And there was a period there where we really didn't have a place to go. We were trying to do something to plant a church. And actually, through the internet, um, we were, we were um, listening to Emilio's pulpit to get some food. I'm not advocating internet church at all. I could get in trouble from so many places for saying that. I, I hope this bit doesn't make it onto sermon audio, Amelia. <laughs> but we we were just in a situation where we had to um, just find food somehow, and uh, Amelia has just been a tremendous blessing. Uh, it was Emilio who who led me into accepting John Calvin into my heart, <laughs> and so. Um, you know, he, that, Emilio and Trish hold a very dear place in my heart. Also through um, the old Way of the Master radio days and the phone fishing days. And I, I knew Trish voyeuristically at that time. I can remember many times riding on my bike in the snow and things and, and hearing, hearing Trish doing phone fishing and, and wondering about, you know, like this, I only knew a voice on the radio. So it's just a real joy to stay in their house and, and know them personally and and to do, um, to do life and to do ministry and to talk about the things of God with them. Is there anything less or anything more exhilarating than talking about the things of God, the treasures in God's word, his truth? You know, truth matters. Truth really matters. Um, the world changed a lot on September 11. I wasn't here in the US, but being an Australian who travelled here, I study at the Master's Seminary. Emilio didn't need to say that. What I'm wearing makes it obvious that I'm a student at the Master's Seminary. <laughs> but travelling, any one of us, when we travel, we are acutely aware that September 11 changed the world. The way security is at the airports these days, it is, it is so... It, it's. It's really grievous, and for an international like myself, I, I almost I slip out of Calvinist mode into sort of an open theist mode at the airport at times and start to panic that I'm missing a piece of paper. I'm, I need to carry all these visas and documents and pieces of paper, and I come up to them, and they have, you're missing something, or I, I have done something wrong, and, and so I get very edgy. We have four children, and when we go through that security point where you've got to take your shoes off, and when you have... You're trying to monitor everything and, and the kids are climbing all over the stuff and running behind these TSA guys and everything. It all makes me very nervous. So travel has become very daunting and um, they get it. You know, the, the thing is, for all the things, you know, people might criticise about what happens with security and so on, one thing we cannot say is they do understand the importance of gatekeeping. They do understand that it's very important to have guardians at the gate. You know, they, they get that issue. And uh, 
when people come in, you know, they are checking out all sorts of things. We're not assuming the best, and then when we find out something, then we'll try and deal with it. You know, there is a, there is a climate in evangelicalism today that, that we'll assume the best until we see something that's wrong. And even then, we might put our best construction on it until we can't uh, deny it any further. And um, it's just happened, just, just recently, of course, the, um, there's been a letter with the um, Acts 29 uh, network um, removing Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill from that list. That's a testimony to what I'm saying, that it took so long for that to happen. Even in the letter they write, they admit that there's been stuff going on for so long and we've been putting up. Imagine if they took that approach at customs, at security at the airport. You know, we're going to, we're going to hope for the best, we're going to believe the best for as long as we can until the complaints and the secular authorities and the world's authorities, you know, they, we cannot refute anymore and we have to do something. I mean, that would be deadly for us, wouldn't it? Terrorism is a, is a deadly thing. People get, terrorists kill people. They're dangerous. We're, we're seeing that on the news with this whole ISIS thing right now. But the thing we fail to realize is spiritual terrorists are far more dangerous because they damn souls with their destructive lies. And, and the terrorists who are hidden in the church, they're, they're more dangerous because that they don't just come in, they're not like, they're not like trying to um, draw any attention to themselves. No, they, they come in through the back door, they sneak in the front, they, they try to speak our language. Much like, I guess, these sleepers they talk about, about today. But we need to be people of the truth, we need to be people who understand the truth. The truth matters, it's the truth that sets us free, the Bible says. Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. The Bible is called the word of truth. Jesus said to his father, your word is truth. And in the scriptures, we are commanded to worship God in truth. We're commanded to obey the truth, to love the truth, to judge by the truth, to speak the truth and to walk in the truth. Truth matters. Satan, on the other hand, he's the father of lies. He's been telling lies and twisting the truth since we see his first appearance in the garden. And he reminds us, you know, why forgery experts spend a lot of time studying real money. Because when we know the truth, we will spot a fake a mile off. And knowing the truth is the ultimate weapon in the truth war that we are called to be engaged in. It is a war out there and, and there is constantly being attacks on the church. Anyone who knows anything about church history knows that that is church history. Church history is defined by the battles for the truth. You know, we get characters like um, Augustine, who wrote these huge books, wrote a lot about theology, but the thing Augustine is, Augustine or Augustine, whatever, what he's most remembered for, of course, is his battle with Pelagius and the, the Pelagian heresy. And so these are defining marks in church history and nothing has changed. It's, it's still happening today. There's nothing, if we know church history, we'll know there's nothing new under the sun. But we know that it's, it's an ever-present battle. We are in a truth war. 
it would seem that in many churches today there's an 11th commandment the 11th commandment that says thou shalt not criticize uh, has anyone heard that commandment uh, it's like it's like this this default position for so many people that you know we'll just focus on what we're saying we won't criticize we won't say anything bad I'm a parent, many of us are parents. Can you imagine taking that approach to parenting? I'm not going to say anything critical about my children. I'm not going to point at anything they do wrong. I'm only going to focus on the truth and, and what they do right. Of course, we have to uh, correct. And also, when there is imposters, when there is terrorists within, you know, we need to point that out. The text, what I'm going to be preaching from today, is all about the importance of that. But, you know, those, those who say these things about not criticising, no, so, it's a strong evidence of a poor grasp of the New Testament, isn't it? To say you shouldn't criticise anyone, it just reflects a, a, lack of, a lack of familiarity with the New Testament. So much of the New Testament is about dealing with false teaching. You know, John's letters, Peter's letters, Paul's letters to the Corinthians and Timothy... And Jesus himself had much to say about wolves in sheep's clothing. Romans 16, 17 tells us, in the King James it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them. Mark them which cause divisions and offences contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Who causes divisions? Those who teach false doctrine. I have friends here today who have been accused of being divisive for pointing out error. But in fact, those who point out error... I have, a, I have a dear friend, Mike Gendron, who is here today, whose ministry, Roman Catholic Apologetics, is all about that. I'm so thankful for that. And I know, Mike, um, there are those who've accused him of being divisive. I've, I've known of others who do that. But actually, those people are the unifiers. Scripture says those who are divisive are those who come in and teach doctrine contrary to what we have learned. So I am so thankful to be in this church, a church where you are taught well and there is discernment going on in here and, and you are being taught to check what's being said and test what is being said against the Word of God like you should be testing what I am saying against the Word of God. Paul goes so far as to pronounce damnation on anyone who preaches any other gospel. Galatians 1, 8, 9. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, Paul repeats himself again. If any man preach any other gospel to you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. So this is a, the stakes are enormously high. These are people who are playing with eternal life, playing with souls, teaching destructive lies, and we need to be zealous for that truth. The book of Jude, if you could turn with me um, in the book of Jude to the first four verses. We'll see that um, the scripture has so much to say about false teachers. That this little epistle of Jude, just lodged just before the end of the Bible, just the second last book, is the only epistle um, in the Bible devoted, 100% devoted to dealing with false teachers, apostates, heretics, who come try and infiltrate the church. Um, we have our book called The Acts of the Apostles, and I know my pastor, John MacArthur, he refers to Jude as the Acts of the Apostates. It's profiling of false teachers. 
Let's turn with me to um, Jude. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace, and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write to you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this passage contains five necessary qualities that someone who contends for the gospel, who contends for the truth, must have. And the first one of those, mark down, the point one is a right surrender to his slavery. A right surrender to his slavery. Now Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. That word servant there is the Greek word doulos. And it's important that I mention this Greek word. As a master's seminary student, I'd better have something to show for my seminary education. So there's my Greek word. (laughs) really it is an important word of course those of us who are familiar with Dr. MacArthur's great book Slave and the whole idea this book is replete throughout the New Testament of talking about that the servant of Christ he is a slave Jude describes himself as a slave of Jesus Christ you know there's so much hostility to slavery and as an aside you know with with a lot of people who try to argue against the Bible and the issue of slavery that, that's a whole other story, but, but just one very simple point worth thinking about is when it talks about slaves in the Old Testament, it has requirements for slaves who are to be let go on the year of Jubilee and also for slaves who would like to stay with their master. I think that shows us very clearly that we're dealing with something very different to the slavery that we have seen in the last several hundred years. This is something much closer, I think, um, with that Old Testament slavery, they, those people were employees. You know, they, they were not, they were being looked after and they, they liked that being cared for. Nonetheless, Jude here refers to himself as a slave and he is, he is talking about his devotion to Christ. It's very interesting that Jude would refer to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ because does anyone know Jude's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? He was actually, he was the Lord's half-brother. And actually we see him referred to in, in, in um, the gospel accounts as an unbeliever with the rest of his half-brothers. And it's interesting, Jude is going to write an epistle and he is going to appeal to the importance of this. He's going to address the church. And wouldn't you think he would like to refer to himself, hey, I'm the Lord's half-brother. Listen to me. He doesn't even do that. He, he, he abases himself. Jude, who didn't believe, he's obviously had a radical conversion and now refers to himself, excuse me, as the, as the Lord's slave. Can you imagine that? We've all had sibling rivalry in our homes. Can you imagine writing a letter and referring to yourself as the slave of a sibling in your family? This is a man who's been radically transformed 
probably after the resurrection of Christ, someone who didn't believe, someone who taunted Jesus about going up to a feast. Jesus saying, my time is not yet. You know, if you are who you say you are, go up to the feast. You know, this taunting, this, this very typical sibling, more severe than most sibling rivalry, and yet now refers to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. We are going to be a slave of something. Everyone's a slave. You're a slave of your sin or you're a slave of your Lord and Master. So choose your allegiance in your slavery, but don't delude yourself into thinking you're not a slave. And I get very concerned when I hear some people using slave language at times in talking about the gospel releasing slaves. I can understand it's not entirely incorrect, but it can end up unwittingly undermining this biblical concept of slavery and what it means to be a slave to Jesus Christ. It's a very important, it's a, it's a word used a lot, and we want to see that the word slave, that, that we are called to be slaves of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul understood this when he said in 1 Corinthians 6, you know, he said, For you are not your own, you are bought with a price. We have been bought with a price. And in a world full of self-esteem that is fixated with feeling good about ourselves and our self-esteem and finding value in ourselves, I think I rejoice in the fact that all my value is found not in myself, but in the fact that someone was willing to pay such a hefty price to purchase me who is not worth anything. That's the marvel. And that's the difference between self-esteem and Christ-esteem. And that's what we need. So Jude is a slave to the Lord. He doesn't want to identify himself as the Lord's half-brother. And the apostates Jude is about to refer to despise the idea of slavery to the Lord Jesus Christ. These are, these are rampant individuals. These are people who probably have Frank Sinatra playing in the CD in their chariot, saying, I did it my way. That's probably what they listen to. That's the mantra of these apostates. The, they are hostile to the idea of slavery and subservience to the true Lord and Master. And that's what Jude is identifying himself as. The book of Jude um, was written, is at difficult times too. You know, the context of Jude writing... This is at a time probably just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. All of the disciples, all of the apostles except for John were dead at this stage. So another thing is this is very risky for Jude to just write a letter and identify himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, someone for whom many people have already been killed. He's putting, he's putting someone who once taunted his half-brothers, now putting his life on the line saying, I'm willing to die for the sake of my slavery and my allegiance to him. So knowing this, that this book is a call to war, a call to the truth, or a call to contending, gives us the reason for what, for what Jude wrote in the rest of verses 1 and 2. Jude goes on to say, To them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So the second point, the first point I mentioned was a right surrender to his slavery. The second point I want to mention, the second quality of a gospel contender, is that they have a right embrace of God's election. 
They have a right embrace of God's election. Emilio has not paid me very much to say that. I also agree with him. <laughs> Doctrine of election is important. It's all over the New Testament. We were talking last night about this, you know, our backgrounds and, and when we start to encounter the doctrines of grace and then we see election is everywhere. And, and it's something that a lot of people struggle with because of their, they, we, we grab on so, so hard to uh, free will, I guess. But election should be something that comforts us and that's why i said an embrace of election that it's a doctrine not that we struggle with it's not a doctrine that we are we are alien from it's not a doctrine that um offends our sensibilities but it's a doctrine that we embrace and draw comfort from because you know for all the talk about free will you know we have people champion free will we hear that don't we many um many apologists want to champ it's it's this it's this doctrine they cling to with desperation and yet um what about god's free will you know and in which of these scenarios i I hear james white talk about this in which of these scenarios is god free is god free if he has to elect everybody is God free if he has to elect nobody? Or is God free if he elects somebody or some people? The only scenario where God is free is when he is electing a certain people, an elect people. That's the only way God is exercising his freedom. I like what R.C. Sproul says. He says, I have free will, God has free will. When my free will runs into God's free will, his wins. And so it is that, you know, that we, we have free will, But without the election of God, without the regeneration from God's calling and election and transforming, we would still be exercising that free will to live in constant rebellion to God. Praise God for his election. We should embrace God's election. Jesus said, you know, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And look how, look how Jude finishes his letter in Jude um, 24, the 24th verse. Jude goes on to say, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So God's sovereignty demonstrated in election is just a glorious comfort to his elect. And we see here that Jude is appealing to that comfort. As he, as he calls out to the soldiers getting ready to enter the battlefield and contend for the faith, He comforts them with the doctrine of election. He comforts them with the doctrine of election. Jude is reminding the church that salvation is totally a work of God, where he takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh and causes us to walk in obedience to his laws. That's why we have the story of the sheep and the goats, because the works of the sheep did not earn them God's favour. It demonstrated God's transforming work in their lives. Our eternities rest completely in the finished work of our righteous substitute, Jesus Christ. And so that should be our comfort as we enter the battlefield to do battle and contend for the truth is that God, God's calling and election, it will not fail. And we should rest in the, in the knowledge of that and go out to battle safe in that knowledge. Verse 2 of Jude here we see that he says mercy unto you and peace and love 
be multiplied. The third essential quality of a gospel contender I want to point out here is a right assurance of God's affection. So we have a right surrender to his slavery, a right embrace of God's election, and thirdly, a right assurance of God's affection. Jude says to his readers, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. And then he goes on, verse 3, describe them as the beloved. It's difficult. We don't often like to talk about... It's difficult at times to talk about the love of God. It's difficult to preach about the love of God because there is so much sentimentality in society today attached to that word. And, and, and it's an abused word. And it's often difficult to... to explain a right meaning but of course we see if any preacher claims to be a preacher of love and he never talks about sin his pants are on fire okay he's a liar our our our, our god's love is defined largely by our sin within that because god showed us his love in that while we were sinning christ died for us so we, when we, we need to understand love in its right context and that god's great love is an amazing comforting glorious thing because he loved us when we didn't love him he loved us when we were living in rebellion to him and he demonstrated that to us and that's how we know it because of our and the woman jesus when the woman was washing his feet and he was talking to the pharisee next to him he said you know who rejoices the most he was forgiven of much or he is forgiven of little a deeper acquaintance with our sin a deeper acquaintance with our depravity gives us a deeper gratitude for God's love and a greater revelation of how great his love is. And Jude, again, at the start of this letter, he's, he's pointing out the, the, the wonderful assurance of God's affection that, that God loves his people. God has a love for his people. Jude has a love for God's people because that's part of being a Christian is that we love God's people. This is how they shall know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. I love to come here. I love to stay with Amelia and Trisha. I love to meet you here. I love to be with like-minded people. There's nothing better this side of eternity than being with God's people. And that love that we have is, is an extension of God's love poured out, the, the love that God has for his people. And Jude is assuring them with God's love that they are beloved, that he loves them. And to go out to battle safe in the knowledge of God's election, God's calling his love for them. Also, we, we see there in, um, in going into um, verse 3, I just lost it there, sorry. Um, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation... I like that he says that, you know, it's a common salvation. We, we are in a Christianity that does not have a class structure. In a world full of class structures, you know, in a society which was, um, the Roman, of course, had a very segregated class structure. But Jude is saying it's a common salvation. It's, it's, um, it's, it's something that, that we are one in Christ, that it's a level playing field before the cross and even though God has different callings and giftings that we are not to be respecters of persons Jude doesn't get a kick out of heresy hunting 
you know. It doesn't have a, we don't have a class structure. Jude is about to show is that, what Jude is about to show is that though we don't have a class structure, no, he's motivated by God's love, that he has the right motive for doing this. He doesn't get a kick out of this. He doesn't want to elevate himself and try and take all these bad guys down and be the king guy. It's because he, he has a love for the people. He has a love for them with their common salvation together with him. But he wants to show them that there are imposters, there are pretenders, there are phonies. Jude could have warned about the lions in the Colosseum. That was going on. This is probably around the time of Nero's persecution. That's going on. But what is he talking about? He's talking about the danger from within. That's the greater danger. The danger within. And that is, as an outsider, looking in on the American culture, if I could offer you this observation, because sometimes when you're in the fish tank, you don't know what it's like to be wet. But when I see the campaigns, you know, for Christmas and boycott this and boycott that, and hey, I'm not against those things, but what is the greater urgency? What is the greater problem? An unbeliever who is acting like an unbeliever or an unbeliever who is pretending to be one of us? Okay? Because I see a lot of energy by Christians protesting things. I saw a guy that they protested something happened on some talk show. And I'm going like, yeah, it's bad. But I'm not surprised. He, this guy's acting how I would expect him to act. At the same time, this person was in the midst of something going on within his own movement that he wasn't saying anything about. The danger from within is the greatest danger. It is, that is why Jude writes this letter. And that is the way Satan operates infiltration there's lines in the Colosseum but far greater danger these people who come in so we see in verse 3 there beloved when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Fourth point in this. So we have a right surrender to his slavery, a right embrace of God's election, a right assurance of God's affection. Fourthly, a right priority for gospel purity. This, this faith that he talks about is once delivered. That word once there. That word once, it reeks of exclusivity, doesn't it? Not multiple. It's once. There is one God, one gospel, one saviour, one way. We are trafficking in a message of exclusivity. And people are offended by that. That is why Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ. And to those who are being saved, it's the smell of life. But to unbelievers, we are the stench of death. Our doctrines of exclusivity are repulsive to these people. And don't buy into this lie of, I'm not sure, and maybe there's another way. Maybe there's a, 
a way that God hasn't shown. Maybe there's a way that God is saving people some other way other than I don't know. Beware of the one who says, Jesus is the only way I know. I've heard that said by some people professing Christians. Jesus is the only way I know. No, he's the only way. It has nothing to do what I think, you know. This, this, I've seen this bumper sticker, I think, in Texas. Where it, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, God said it and that settles it whether you believe it or not. He said, there's one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. And we're not called to apologize for that. He's the only one who's fulfilled the law on their behalf. He's the only one who has taken the punishment for our crime. Everyone else is an imposter. And so we should be zealous for that exclusivity. You know, we, we refer to ourselves as reformed. And someone like Michael Horton, he might object to me calling myself reformed because I don't hold to infant baptism or to his particular brand of eschatology. So I just say that as a caveat to say when we talk about being reformed, I mean in the sense of soteriology, in the sense of the gospel, in the sense of understanding. So when we talk about reformed, we understand generally that we're talking about um, our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of the doctrines of grace. And I'm, I'm quite concerned these days about the number of people who are calling themselves reformed and still being ecumenical towards places like Rome. What was, the, what was the Reformation? What were the five solas? What does sola mean? Alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. God's word alone. To the glory of God alone. We traffic in exclusivity. This is an exclusive faith. There is no other way. We don't grow the kingdom by making the narrow gate into a wide gate. This is an exclusive faith, and I'm very concerned about people who would call themselves reformed and forget that we traffic in exclusivity, that this is all about solas, and this is all about people laying their life down for these truths. And don't buy the other lie that's commonly being perpetuated that, you know, well, this doctrine, you know, the, the doctrine of justification, it was, it's an invention of the reformers. You know, you hear that. Or, you know, I even, um, I even read um, Rob Bell in his book, he claimed that the doctrine of the Trinity is an invention of the fourth century. Now, why did he say that? He said that because that's where we see the creed appear. That's where we see the Nicene Creed appearing. And so some people say, well, look, the doctrine doesn't appear until we see the creed. But can you imagine if there was archaeologists on Manhattan Island in the year 3000 and they're doing an excavation and they dig and as they dig they find these, these um, written evidence of laws being enacted and they see evidence of a law on um, September 11, 2001 or whatever decreeing that you know it's wrong to fly a plane into a building. And I read that and the law is enacted in September 11, 2001. And so I say, okay, therefore, prior to September 11, 2001, everyone believed it was okay to fly a plane into a building. 
Because this is the first time we see that anyone really believed this. What is faulty with what I just said? What's wrong with what I just said? Is that, of course, they are enacting a law that everyone already believed. But because someone did something crazy, they had to state it. They believe this. We, we, we form doctrine, and over history, we form doctrine because of false teaching that rises up. And we react to it. That's why they were stating the doctrine of the Trinity in the 4th century. is because false teaching, Sabellians, you know, forerunners of T.D. Jakes had arrived on the scene and they were proclaiming their false view of the Trinity, their three modes of God and it needed to be repudiated so we see the doctrine but that doesn't mean that people all of a sudden started believing that and likewise with the reformers when they were proclaiming the solas of the reformation they were not discovering or inventing something new they were restating what was historic Christian faith that had been attacked it had been assaulted it had been buried under centuries of of just this, this Roman Catholic monstrosity that was overrunning the furtherance of the gospel. And, and God used them to restore what he had already established. There's nothing new about that. So we deal in an exclusive gospel and we should not be ashamed of that. We should be proud of that. And we should understand also that that exclusivity is what makes us relevant. You want to be relevant Preach an exclusive gospel. That will make you relevant. If you want to be like everyone else and act like everyone else, you're not relevant. Because that's nice. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Great! I love me. And I have a wonderful plan for my life. That's great to know. See you later. No, we deal in something that assaults their sensibilities, that is different, and that is what is compelling about us. Even when they don't agree, it's what they can't let go. We've seen it in so many open-air situations. When someone is provoked and convicted by something that is contrary and different to the, to the worldview that they live in, they can't let it go. Have you seen it that times, you know, when you might preaching or someone and, and someone gets offended by what is preached and they keep walking down the street and then after a while they stop and they turn around and they come back. They need to argue some more with you because they're convicted because you've become relevant to them because you have assaulted their worldview. Now, I, I'm not saying to act like a jerk. <laughs> I've been persecuted for righteousness sake. I've been persecuted for being a jerk. I have learned the difference between the two. But what I am saying is that in love, the love that Jude has for his people, we should be bold and forthright in the claims that the gospel makes. It's what makes us relevant. And it's what we must adhere to in everything. It's, it's just not a complicated issue. We make it complicated because of our desire at times uh, to be, um, to, I guess, to win everybody's friendship, to win everybody's popularity, to please men, 
that we can fall into that. We are not called to please men. And also, we need to remember, and I'm very thankful to come here, that I've been talking to Amelia about this this weekend, that when um, pragmatism trumps doctrine... I'm learning too that you can have all your doctrinal ducks lined up. But if you're a pragmatist, then a situation is going to arise that's going to demand that you alter your theology for that situation. Be very wary of the doctrine statement that is being used as a deception. We discovered that working at Grace to You, we discovered that with um, dealing with some of these cults like IHOP and Bethel Church in Reading that people would write to us and they would say, well, my teenage, old teenage son or daughter wants to go there for a year. I checked out their doctrine statement. It looks good. That's the first thing we check out. So these people are learning. Get me an orthodox doctrine statement. They don't even know what it says. It's like throwing you a bone. There you go. You're one of those discernment people. Here's one to keep you happy but they won't preach it, they don't hold to it. It's just there to try and give some pseudo-credibility to people who who take the Bible seriously. So just be very wary that when you see a doctrine statement, that doesn't mean that they believe it or preach in accordance with it. So there's another question you need to ask upon that concerning their pragmatism and concerning what really goes on. So we just need to be discerning and just from experience in my job, I just those of you parents and people who are dealing with that, I would just urge you to think about that. You know, contending, it's necessary. It's necessary that we contend for the faith because we are in this war. There is constantly things going on right now. We just have to get into the blogosphere and look around at, at what's going on and there's disputes left, right and centre. We need to be content. We need to know what hills are worth dying on. And the once for all delivered faith is the Everest of those hills. But it is necessary that we contend. And, and the idea that those who expose what is false is unloving, it's just false. Jude's motive for writing this whole epistle exposing these people is love. It is love. He's motivated by love. His love for the people, his love for God. And any preacher who tells people that there is no hell and everyone is going to heaven, is that loving? That's not loving. That's a a hateful thing to say to someone who is lost in their sin. That's That's a selfish, uncaring thing that actually might... Selfish thing to preserve your own credibility or your own esteem that you are held in among others. We are in the business of life and death, heaven and hell, repent or perish. You know, the motto at the Master's Seminary is we train men as if lives depend on it. And I I love that motto because we should preach as if lives depend on it. They do. They do. The Al-Qaeda of the world, they might kill men, you know, kill men. But we are dealing with people who destroy men's souls for all eternity. How much more hostile should we be to that? Which leads us to my fifth point, the last one. A right hostility towards heretics, Jude mentions. So we have a right surrender to his slavery, a right embrace of God's election, 
a right assurance of God's affection, a right priority of gospel purity, and a right hostility towards apostate heretics. Jude says that there are certain men, they crept in unaware. They don't come in with a big flashing light on their head, you know. They were who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here he says, crept in unaware. They sneak in under the radar and they're anonymous. If you look at church history, you'll see that liberals and apostates never build anything. We've got all these liberal seminaries all over the country. Were they built by liberals? No, they were infiltrated and taken over by them. You just have to look at Yale, Princeton. These were founded to train missionaries. Spurgeon's Bible College. Look at most of the denominations today and you'll see infiltration and corruption. They don't start new movements. They invade them and corrupt them. This is history. We need to be aware and we need to be ready to contend for the truth for these reasons. Look how Jude describes these false teachers in verse 12. They're like clouds without water. They're like trees without fruit. I grew up in the Australian outback. It's dry. I know you have droughts in Texas. I think we have droughts on a whole other level. But there's nothing worse when you live in that place than a cloud without rain. We live in hope of when the next rain will come. And when we see that grey cloud coming on the horizon and coming over us, this could be the one. It's going to drop the water. We're, we're excited. And what a letdown when that cloud releases no rain. It just... It just teases you, it just floats over. It would be better that you never saw that cloud. But know that, that these people are like clouds without water. They promise much and deliver nothing. Trees without fruit. They imitate a Christian, but they have no fruit of the Spirit. And in verse 4, we see who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. We know that this apostasy had been prophesied long ago. In verses 14 and 15 of Jude, he mentions that Enoch prophesied of their coming. We're talking a long time ago, before the flood. You know, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's interesting also to note at the end of verse 4 that Jude profiles the character of heretics rather than the content of their heresy. Heresies come, heresies go. In fact, if you really study history, there's basically about five main heresies that just keep being recycled throughout history. But rather than doing that, it's interesting that Jude talks about their character, talks about the character of these people because I guess he could have spent a massive treatise just digging up every different false teaching that's floating around. He says, this is how you recognize them. This is their character. They are sensual and worldly, lovers of pleasure and power and money. Jesus said, we will know them by their fruit. And Jude writes to the church and points out the lifestyles of these false teachers. 
you know, as heresies come, heresies go, but the false teachers are always recognized by the same behavior. Whether it be a love of money and things, a love of sexual immorality, or a love of power. Scripture gives us plenty of warning about that. But at the end of verse 4, Jude does point out one common thread in, in all heresy, almost all heresies, they attack the person of Christ. A lot of people get fooled in this area because many false teachers use the name of Jesus Christ. I think Kenneth Copeland always signs off his TV program with Jesus is Lord. And you know, we shouldn't be fooled by that. What Jesus are they talking about? When a Mormon talks about Jesus, is he talking about our Lord? No, he's talking about a brother of Lucifer who was a spirit baby once, comes from some planet somewhere. And you'll be like him one day. You know, so don't be fooled by people even using the name of, of Jesus Christ. We need to know our Saviour. We need to know who he is and understand who he is and differentiate between true and false Christs as we do against true and false Gospels. We look through history, you know, you'll see that... Um, the Jewish legalists, they denied the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. The Gnostics denied his humanity. The Arians denied his divinity. The Pelagians denied his sovereignty. And the Sassinians denied his miracles. Every heresy is attacking him, and Jude is pointing that out. You know, what, what Jude says... Um, Denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what denying him amounts to. A denial of him as he is defined in God's word, as who he really is. That is a denial of Jesus Christ. So just because someone might say the name does not mean an affirmation of him. So there, there we have those, those five qualities of a gospel contender. A right surrender to his slavery, that, that's my own slavery, a recognizing my slavery, a right embrace of God's election, embracing that glorious doctrine of God's election, a right assurance of God's affection, being comforted in God's love, a right priority for gospel purity, that we will be zealous for the gospel, and a right hostility towards apostate heretics. We will be zealous to expose and excommunicate those people who are in that boat and it's interesting in Jude when he talks about that we can say what about reaching out to false teachers he does touch on that later in the letter where he says you know some say through the flames some hating even the garment um, soiled by the flesh and and that that kind of evangelism to these people because they're so dangerous it's saying even witnessing to these heretics is very dangerous and they should be hit and run missions Drive-by evangelism. You know, that when it says that the, the garment stained by the flesh, it's talking about underwear. And it's talking about what can stain underwear. I, I've, we've had four children. This has been a huge battle for me, just dealing with diapers and things like that. And I've got to tell you, for me, it, it, it's such a battle to do that, to even go near that, and it's hit and run, you know? And when I'm carrying that stuff outside, 
I'm not like spending time with it. I'm not doing friendship evangelism with it. You know, I need to get it outside and disposed of as quickly as possible. And I'm carrying it as far away from me. I don't want to be near it. And we should have that feeling with I don't want to be near this. I know I'm going to give them stern warning about this, about the judgment of God. And I'm going to get this away from me as quickly as possible. I don't want it near me. I don't want it near anyone else. So there is a place for that, but it's, it's, it's dangerous work and, and it's not something that we should be just spending our time immersed and hanging out with these people. You know, some time ago, Rick Warren and T.D. Jakes both said something that I agree with and that's really, really hurts to say. But they said that the greatest problem in the church today is civility. And I agree. But where I radically disagree from them is they think the problem is a lack of civility. I'm going to contend to you that there is too much civility and there is too much tolerance of what is wrong. Amelia and I, um, we were talking about a book the other night where this guy, a, 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 a great author, gives a great refutation on someone who's attacking the doctrine of justification. But he refuses to call the guy out. And I'm like... He's, get, he's preaching another gospel, but so, and you're proving that, so you're doing a great job there, but you're just refusing. You're too, he's too civil. Then he lavishes compliments on the guy. This is a problem out here. There is a time when, when civility is a problem, when the stakes are high. You know, and the TSA, for all the good or bad connected with that at least understand you know that you can't be civil with some people this is serious business and the stakes are high and when someone is doing violence to this glorious gospel we call them out we don't hang with these people we don't applaud these people and we don't promote them or ignore them or refuse to to um call people to avoid feeding at that waterhole. And so this call today, this call to contend for the faith is realising that at times it will make us unpopular, it will make us seem like we are unloving, but actually we are the loving ones. We are the lovers of the truth, we are the lovers of God's people, and we are the lovers of his gospel. And we are zealous about these central truths of the gospel. Who God is. Holy. Who we are. Radically depraved. God's judgment. There is a day of judgment. There is a heaven and a hell. There are eternal consequences. And I know that there are people like N.T. Wright and so forth who think that the question of how may I inherit eternal life is a very uninteresting question. He hasn't talked to people on their deathbeds. He hasn't read the Bible. Can you imagine talking to the thief on the cross about racism and, um, and who is in the covenant community? That guy wants to know, can you remember me when you're coming to your kingdom? These are precious doctrines. These matter. People are dying 
And people wonder, how may I inherit eternal life? And we are the only one they may ever hear from. Living in Denmark, when I witnessed, I realised at times, I would talk to people and it's so lost in Europe. People in America think it's so bad, it's just on a whole other scale in Europe. And I would talk to people and I would be overwhelmed with the thought, this person is a young man right now, he might grow to be an old man and this might be the only time he ever hears the truth of the gospel. I need to tell him about who God is. I need to tell him honestly about who he is and his depravity and his lostness. I need to warn him about the judgment of God that is coming, that it is real and it's a real place where real people go. I need to tell him about what Christ has done, fulfilling the law on his behalf, taking the punishment that he deserves crediting him with his righteousness taking his sin upon himself and that is the only way because that's the only way of dealing with that problem and calling on him to repent and put his trust in Christ we need to advocate those things we need to contend for those truths and we need to guard against anyone who would dare assault any of them in the slightest way and close with Paul's exhortation again. If anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be anathema. These people are marked out for condemnation. We can warn them. But God has appointed for that and he has entrusted us in the church with a job to deal with that. And it's a real honor for me that I was able to come here today and come to a church that understands that. And I thank you and, and ask you to receive this exhortation as a reminder of the importance of this and the job we have and to support your leaders in this difficult and thankless job that they will continue to have to do in the years ahead.